Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Hear God's word to us. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. I was thinking about something earlier this week. I was realizing that every single day, we make hundreds and hundreds of decisions about what we're going to put our trust in, don't we? I mean, it might be subconscious, might even be unconscious, but every day, we choose to put our trust in something hundreds of times. Maybe it's your alarm clock. You trust your alarm clock to go off at the right time so that you can wake up and get to work or, you know, go to school or wherever it is you need to go. Uh, maybe it's your seatbelt in your car. You know, when you, when you hook in your seatbelt, you trust that it's going to hold you in your car if you need it to. I've seen the way some of you drive. You really put a lot of trust in your seatbelt um, holding you in your car if you need it to. One of the things we trust so much is the Internet, right? We always trust that the Internet is working. In fact, the only time we realize there's an Internet is when the Internet's not working and we can't do, like, everything because everything we do is on the Internet. We put our trust in a lot of things. But every once in a while, every once in a while, we have an experience that makes us question whether that thing we're putting our trust in actually deserves our trust. I had an experience like this in college. A friend of mine and I decided we wanted to go take a road trip and visit some of our friends at a different college. It was like a six or seven hour drive. And, um, you know, what do you do in college? You go on road trips, you don't have anything to do. So we went on a road trip to go visit our friends. But before we left, we realized we needed some help getting there. We'd never made this drive before, right? We have no idea where this, uh, this place is. So we went on this really cool website we were so pumped about. It's called MapQuest. And we typed in our address 
and their address, and within like two minutes, our printer is literally telling us how to get to this college. It was so cool. So with our MapQuest directions in hand, and we threw like, you know, a spare t-shirt in a plastic bag, we were good to go for the weekend, we piled in the car, and we took off following our directions from MapQuest. We get about maybe three hours into the trip, and my buddy who's sitting next to me, he's navigating, he's reading all these directions to me. Um, He says, hey, we need to get off at the next exit, we need to exit the highway. So we do it. We get off the highway. All right, go a half a mile, take a right. You know how it works. You need to drive 20 minutes, take a left, all this. So we're following these directions, driving down these country roads for like 45 minutes, following these directions that the MapQuest gave us. And as we're getting towards the end of this little jaunt into the country, I think it was in Iowa, um, we see a highway coming, and he says, oh, according to our directions, we need to get on that highway. It's like, all right, finally, we're back on the highway. We can make some good time. We can drive a little faster. So we get on the highway, and all of a sudden, I start passing things I recognize. It's like, hmm, that barn is collapsing the same way the other barn was collapsing like an hour ago. And that truck stop, the the same letter is out. And as we pass the exit that we got off on an hour ago, we realize that MapQuest had let us down. It took us off the highway in a big circle backwards and brought us back on the same highway 20 miles before we got off the highway in the first place. We shouldn't have been trusting the map quest. The map quest led us astray. Now, that was a, that was a tough experience following directions, but it, really, it wasn't anything like this. Check this out. Make the next right turn. How do they know? How does this know where to turn? That's very impressive. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right. It said take a right. No, 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 look. It, it means go up to the right, bear right, over the bridge, and hook up with 307. Make a right Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's a light there. Right it knows where it is going. The, the machine knows. This is the light. Stop yelling at me. No, it's not yelling. Remain calm. I have trained for this. Okay. I love the part in that when he says, it can't mean that. There's a lake there. So Michael Scott, like me, put his trust in the wrong place to get him where he wanted to go. And, and on the rest of that drive, back when I was in college, of the many thoughts there, that were going through my head, there's only one I can repeat out loud in a sermon, and it is, I wish somebody would have told me not to trust these directions. I wish I would have known before we exited the highway and went on a big circle that took us nowhere that we shouldn't be exiting the highway and taking a big circle that's taking us nowhere. I wish somebody would have told me, use Google Maps, not MapQuest, duh. I wish I would have known before we wasted all that time, before we wasted all that gas. I mean, we're college students, right? We have exactly enough money to pay for the exact amount of gas we need and, like, no more. I don't know how we thought we were going to eat, but that's a different conversation. And we've all had experiences like this, haven't we? I mean, it could be something as mundane as the GPS or instructions about technology or something like that. It could be something as big as trusting a person or an idea or a book with a life decision. What kind of investment should we make? Where should we move? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? At some point in our lives, we have all found ourselves at a place where we said, I wish somebody would have told me not to do this. I wish somebody would have told me not to follow that person or that thing. Or if you're like me, it's more, I wish 
I would have listened to the person who told me not to go this way. It's not going to take me where I want to go. Well, we're in the middle of a series today called A Beautiful Mess. We're taking a look at an ancient letter written to an ancient church and realizing that it's very relevant for us today. Just as an aside, if you miss any of the sermons in this series, it's pretty important to keep up with the sermons in this series to understand what we're talking about. We keep all of our sermons online, so we have trusted the internet. Um, hopefully it is, it is true for us. You can go to our website, ccefc.org slash audio, and see any of our sermons there. Also, you can search for our podcasts on iTunes. We have all of our sermons online as long as the internet is around. So this church, this little church plant, this ancient church, is a lot like our own. It's a church plant in the middle of a city with all sorts of opportunity to kind of climb the corporate ladder and that kind of thing. And it looked like it had everything going for itself. But we saw at the beginning of the series that when you look behind the curtain of this church, you realize it's a stinking mess. They have all sorts of terrible stuff going on in this church. They're all divided, following different pastors, and, and they have these really terrible sexual practices going on in the church, and they're like, they're like excited about the fact that they're going on. They're like, look at our progressive way we think about this. You know, they are taking the Lord's Supper in this way where the rich people who have access to all the food and drink they could ever want are getting drunk on the communion wine. They're eating all the communion bread, and the poor people who don't have access to any food anyways are not even getting a taste. And it goes on and on and on and on. Well, the man who planted this church, his name is Paul, he gets wind of all this, and so he's writing them this letter. And in our passage today, we're going to see the end of kind of his opening section. He's about to get into all these really specific issues they have. But before he does that, in his opening section that we saw last week and this week, he's going to diagnose the root cause, that thing that's going on underneath the surface that's giving rise to all of the problems in the Corinthian church. And then he's going to offer them a cure. And what we're going to see today is that thing that is plaguing the Corinthian church going on underneath the surface is that they have put their trust in the wrong place. They've put their trust in the wrong place. So before we get into the text... Just remember that this is a letter written to a church. It's really easy for all of us here who are regulars at church to read this and say, well, thank God we don't have all those problems. I mean, they are messed up. But if we listen closely to what's going on beneath the surface in the Corinthian church, we'll realize that that root issue is something that can be a temptation for us as well. It's right at our doorstep, if not already in our church. And if we don't hear Paul's message of don't go that way, your trust is in the wrong thing, we could find ourselves, this church, with all these sorts of problems as well. So, with that in mind, go ahead and open up your Bible apps, or go to Google, or if you are using a print Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 6. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's on page 619. Make it a little bit easier for you to find it. Well, if you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul revealed this thing that is folly to the world and he calls it or he doesn't call it but it is it is Christ crucified Christ crucified is this thing that is folly to the world but he talked about last week how it's the only thing we can boast in it's the only thing we can have any hope in he puts it this way for the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God and this is the statement Paul is making, and he, he defends it. He spends the whole um, first two chapters defending this statement. And this is how he summarizes it 
At the end of last week's passage, he says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, I don't want you to believe this just because I out-debated this other guy. I don't want you to believe this just because my argument was more compelling than the one you heard down the street because I can turn a phrase better than that person. I have better jokes than that person. I don't want you to believe for any of those reasons. I want you to believe because you've encountered Christ crucified, this thing that is folly to the world, and realized that it is your only hope. It is the only thing you can boast in. So he doesn't even bother with these words of eloquent wisdom. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that Paul is telling the Corinthian church just to dismiss all wisdom. Just become these closed-minded, anti-intellectual, narrow kind of people who have nothing to do with anything in the world that is called knowledge. That's not what he's telling them to do. Instead, in this passage today, he's telling them to choose to pursue the right wisdom. He's telling them to choose to pursue the right wisdom. Because he begins this passage by saying, and yet, among the mature, we do preach wisdom. We do preach wisdom. Now, you may know that this is not the first letter that was exchanged between Paul and this church. We call it 1 Corinthians, whatever. Uh, It's not the first letter. There were a couple letters at least beforehand. There's a couple letters after. So we're like right in the middle of a conversation here. And this word mature is almost certainly a reference back to the letter the Corinthians sent him, calling themselves mature. Look at how mature we are. It's not, we, we know that it's not just about Jesus, but it's about all these other things as well. And Paul is turning this phrase back on them and saying that thing that we preach that is folly is actually wisdom, but just takes a mature person to see it. But the Corinthian church doesn't see it because they've been taken by something else Entirely, They've been taken by this wisdom that Paul calls the wisdom of this age. You can see in your text that that phrase, of this age, shows up three times in the first three verses. It is the wisdom of this age. In other words, this is a wisdom that's totally a reaction to current circumstances. That's all it is. It's the loudest voices talking about the loudest issues of the day. It's totally reactionary. And to illustrate this, Paul goes to a group of people that he knows very well. In fact, he used to be a part of them. The Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the the priests, the people who were responsible for the worship of Israel, they were taken by the wisdom of this age. You see, they found themselves in the history of Israel once again oppressed by this foreign nation. Rome had come in, had conquered them, and now they're totally at the mercy of whatever Rome wants them to do. They can, Rome can tax them however they want to tax them. The Roman soldiers treat the people however they want to treat the people with total immunity. It's a terrible situation. So it's no wonder when these religious leaders read about this chosen one of God, the Messiah in Hebrew or the, or the Christ in Greek, this chosen one who's going to come and work salvation for God's people. It's easy to see why these leaders would say, well, the salvation he's going to work for us is obviously salvation from Rome. Obviously, that's our greatest need right now. He's going to come in, and he's going to lead a military coup, and he's going to free us from the oppression of Rome. And when one comes claiming to be the Messiah, and has kind of a lot of followers who think he's the Messiah too, and he's doing all sorts of miracles to kind of back up that he's the Messiah, 
But he doesn't do those things. He doesn't lead a military revolt, revolt to liberate them from Rome. They crucify him. Because based on their wisdom, he must be an imposter. He can't be the real deal. But their wisdom was totally situated in their circumstances. And when they crucified Jesus, they showed that they had been taken by the wisdom of this age. And what's so dangerous about the wisdom of this age, Paul says, is that, this little phrase he uses, it is doomed to pass away. It is doomed to pass away, which makes total sense, doesn't it? If the thing that we call wisdom in this day is just a reaction to our current circumstances, then when our circumstances change, that wisdom is just going to be gone, right? I mean, this just makes sense. The problem is that the people who are attaching themselves, who are trusting in the wisdom of this age, they are also doomed to pass away. It's a temporary thing. It's not going to last forever. This is, this is the wisdom that the Corinthian church has been taken by. It's just the wisdom of their age. It's just what all the folks are saying in the town square. And they're embracing it too. But the point of this text is not for Paul just to make them feel really bad about themselves. He doesn't come in, drop a really cool argument, drop the mic, and walk away. He's not about that. He wants them to know That even though the wisdom of this world will pass away, that it is doomed to pass away, that it's just a temporary reaction, he wants them to know that there is another option. That the good news is that there is a wisdom that is not of this world. There is a wisdom that is not of this world. See, the wisdom that Paul teaches, it's another wisdom entirely. Listen to how he describes it in verse 7. He says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages and for our glory. You see, unlike the wisdom of this age, the wisdom that Paul preaches is a wisdom that was decreed before all ages. This is an eternal wisdom. This is God's plan right from the beginning. It was always his plan. It's not a reaction to circumstances. This is an eternal plan of God, and notice that it is for our good. It is for our good. The wisdom of this world, it dooms us to pass away right along with it. But this eternal wisdom of God is for our good. So Paul isn't telling the the Corinthian church to reject wisdom. He's telling them to choose to pursue the right wisdom. Choose to pursue the eternal wisdom that is for their good and to give up the wisdom of this age that dooms them to pass away. And this is how he describes that wonderful wisdom, that eternal wisdom that is for their good in verse 9. He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This wisdom is so good. It's so wonderful that it is totally beyond our ability to even imagine it. It's totally beyond our ability to go out there and perceive it by you know, conversation and research and reading and all that stuff. We can't even make this up. It's so good. There is a wisdom that's not of this world. But here's where it gets even better. 
It's not just that we have this wisdom that's eternally God's plan for us and that it is for our good. But now, in verse 10, the whole, the whole conversation changes when he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It's not a secret anymore. It's not the secret hidden plans of God anymore because God has revealed it to us through the Holy Spirit. Um, to illustrate this, are there any Star Trek fans in here? <sighs> Not that many. Just like first service, this illustration could go a couple ways. Um, we'll go with it anyways. So there's this character in Star Trek whose name is Spock. Please tell me that enough of you have heard of Spock. Okay, we're just going to go with it. And Spock has this, this really cool ability to like put his fingers on uh, someone else's face. And when he does it in a certain way, their minds are connected. They can see what's going on in the other person's mind. And this is really cool because it gets past that really cumbersome exercise of trying to explain your thoughts to someone. Trying to get them to understand what's going on in your head. I mean, if you just see it firsthand, that's got to be preferable, right? Because no matter how good you are at explaining what's going on in your head, no matter how articulate you are, no matter how good a listener or empathizer the person is that you're talking to, they're never going to be able to understand what's going on in your mind with the same accuracy that you will. And the same problem exists with us and God. But God has given us access to his mind so that the depth of his plan for us, the depth of his wisdom for us, can be revealed. And not only can it be revealed, but it is freely given. Paul says that in the text it is freely given to us. Which makes it not at all like the wisdom of this world. Anything from this world that you want to gain, you've got to pay for it, right? You've got to earn it. You've got to go to college. You've got to buy the book. You've got to go to the seminar. You've got to go through, you know, the 10 steps to your whatever. You've got to go through all these things to get the wisdom of this world. You've got to pay for it. You've got to earn it. But with God, with God, it's given to us freely. Partly because there's nothing we can do to merit it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. You remember, it's beyond what we're capable of perceiving. It's beyond what we're capable of finding. But God has given it to us freely. This is why in verse 13, Paul says, I didn't even bother with those eloquent words of wisdom. I'm not going to try to debate you in. There's always going to be someone who's going to come after me that's more eloquent. I can only pass it along to you in the same way it was passed along to me. That Paul, who describes himself elsewhere as the chief of sinners, and he kind of was, was able to be saved by God's wisdom, by God's plan than anybody can be. So he passes it on the way he received it through spiritual means. So there it is. There's a wisdom that is not of this world. It's totally unlike the wisdom of this age, which is temporary, which dooms us to fail, which is just a reaction to circumstances. Instead, it is God's eternal wisdom, God's eternal plan for us that is for our good, and it is freely revealed to all who will receive it. And what is the content of that wisdom? Same as it was last week. It is Christ crucified. It is Jesus on the cross. 
This was always God's plan from before all time for Jesus to be up on that cross. He wasn't just reacting to changed circumstances. Way back in the very beginning when humans first decided they were going to pursue the wisdom of the world and reject the wisdom of God, when they first decided they were going to go on their own path and not follow God's path, not follow God's design for them, God already had a plan in place to bring them back. He already had a plan in place to bring them back because that's how much he loves us. This is the wisdom of God, Christ up on the cross. And so Paul started this whole section way back in chapter 1, verse 18, by saying this wisdom, this word, is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he comes back now, now that he's wrapping up this introductory section, he comes back and he restates that sentence one more time when he says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. I want to say a quick word on that last verse 15 and then we'll, we'll wrap it up because this is a verse that all throughout the history of Christianity has been really abused by, in the name of Christ. This is a verse that a lot of people have used to say, hey, people of the world, you can't judge me. I'm a spiritual person. And as, as I say that, I, I'm just even ashamed of the fact that I'm tempted to do that in my own life, really. But if we understand what's going on in this verse, if we understand what Paul is saying in the context of this chapter, we won't be susceptible to that temptation. So let's take a look at it real quick, and then we'll wrap things up. The spiritual person has already been defined by Paul as the person who understands the wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified. To understand the wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified, the person must understand just how desperately they need Christ crucified in order to be saved. This is the length God had to go to save us. That's how bad we are. So whenever I preach Christ crucified... I'm telling the world, this is what God had to do to save me. I'm this bad. He had to come down into the world as a person, go all the way to the cross and die. That's what he had to do to save me. So there's no way in which I could ever use this verse to make myself look good, to build myself up, to be arrogant in my own abilities and what I have to offer. If that's how I use the verse, I show that I have totally misunderstood the wisdom of God And therefore, I show myself to be a natural person. You see, the cross is the ultimate act of self-denial. All the rights God has, he lays down for the benefit of others, for the benefit of you and me. It's not an act of self-improvement or self-promotion or self-interest or anything like that. But it's an act of self-denial. So when we preach Christ crucified, we say that we are that bad but God is that good. We are that bad, but God is that good. This is the wisdom of God. And when we understand it, we understand just how desperately we need the cross. It's our only hope. It's the only thing we can boast in. And so Paul finishes this section by asking this question from Isaiah 40 that we heard read earlier in the service. For who has understood the mind of the Lord? 
so as to instruct him? Who understands God's mind enough to actually give him instruction? Well, Jesus does. The text says Jesus knows God's mind that well, and he, his spirit, has been given freely to us so that we might understand as well. There is a wisdom that's not of this world. It's an eternal wisdom that is for our good, and it is freely offered to all of us. That wisdom is Christ crucified. It's Jesus on the cross. So the question that leaves us with, then, is this. Which wisdom will you choose? Which wisdom will you choose? Look, Christian or not, there's plenty of different times in our lives where we are tempted to, to give in to the wisdom of this world, and we may not even know it. I mean, it's all around us, this, this culture, this context that we're in right now that tells us that we can achieve anything we put our mind to, right? I mean, you, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you make something of yourself, and God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible, by the way, if you didn't know. That's, that's not there, so don't go looking for it. But the reality is, when we find ourselves at a decision point, at a crossroads, where the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are butting heads, they're in opposition to each other, we have a choice to make. Which wisdom are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the wisdom that's just a reaction to your circumstances? Or are you going to choose the wisdom that was decreed before all time for your good? One of the biggest ways this manifests in our culture right now is with sex just in the same way it was for the Corinthians, and we'll get to that. You know, the world tells you that sex is just an expression of who you are, and it's your body, do whatever you want, you know? And you guys, you live together before you get married. You wouldn't test drive, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it, right? But the wisdom of God says, sex is such a good and wonderful and powerful thing that it's really only safe to do it in the context of a marriage. When you're at that decision point, which wisdom will you choose? The wisdom that's a reaction to your circumstance and your desires or the wisdom that was decreed from before all time that's for your best. The wisdom uh, surrounding what our stuff, our finances, what we gain, the stuff we accrue, the wisdom says to be safe, the wisdom of this world says to be safe, you gotta get as much stuff as you can possibly get. You gotta have a good 401k, you gotta have a good emergency fund, a good savings account, all that stuff. That's where you find your security. The wisdom of God says that the true path to security is actually through generosity. It's actually through giving yourself in the same way that Jesus gave of himself when he went to the cross. Which wisdom are you going to choose? The wisdom that's just a reaction to your circumstances and your feelings or desires? Or the wisdom that was decreed from before all time for your good? Look, I could go on and on with examples of how this plays out in our lives. But there's some really, really good news in this. The reality is, and those of us who have lived long enough know, that we will never live a life that is totally submitted to the wisdom of God. We are not good enough. But the really, really good news is that there is someone who has lived that life. You see, Jesus, in his time on earth, lived a life perfectly submitted to the wisdom of God, which led him all the way to the cross. And when he was on the cross, he was dying the death that we deserve to die because we lived the life we shouldn't have lived. It's the, it's the great divine reversal. Jesus was treated as if he lived our life so that we could be treated as if he, we lived his. 
the really, really good news is that there is hope for us. There is something in which we can boast. There is a wisdom in which we can find an eternal strength, and it is the cross. It is Jesus on the cross. And when we grasp that, when we understand just how desperately we need what God has done for us on the cross, it changes everything about how we live our lives. Okay, here's the deal on this, and then I'm done. Christ crucified is the cure Paul is offering to the Corinthian church. The wisdom of this world, this underlying problem, has grown up in all sorts of issues in their church. And the answer, if we're going to cut the problem off at the root, is to embrace the wisdom of God, Christ crucified. And if we reject that wisdom, we will be drugged kicking and screaming through the rest of this letter. Because Paul is now going to show how the life submitted to Christ crucified plays out in everyday life and all these issues they have. So if at any point you find yourself in the rest of this series or or if you're reading this book on your own saying, I'm totally offended by that. That's so antiquated. That's so first century. That works then, but what about now? Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. Try it. I'm serious. Try it. Try living the life that is shown here as the design God has for us, as the way God has decreed for us to live from before all time. Try living the life that is based on Christ crucified, that is trusting in the design God has for us. Because the deal is that there's no sermon we can write, no uh, argument we can create or flowery words we can use that will convince anyone to follow Christ. But in the demonstration of the Spirit's power to bring about new life, just like he did on the cross, we can live a life the way God designed. That's possible for you. So, as we go forward in this series, in those moments where you want to bail because you're offended or because it seems like it's antiquated, it doesn't apply, don't quit. Stay with it and see the life that God has designed for you to live. We're going to start that next week, so I encourage you to come back, but for now, let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have created a plan for us, a wisdom for us, from before we were even born, before we could even think, before we could even pursue you, you were already pursuing us. You already had a plan in place for us. So Lord, as we go forward in this series and even in this week, we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us your plan. That first and foremost, that we are sinful and we need you. And that you have made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be with you. And that you have a life that is designed for us to live that is for our good. Give us the faith in your plan to pursue it. It's in your Son's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross and finished the plan that God had decreed from before all time, he left for his followers a meal. And this meal is a tangible way for us to remember the wisdom of God. Because when we take the broken bread, we remember the body of Christ that was broken in our place. And when we dip it in the juice, we remember the blood of Christ that was shed to wash us clean of our sins. So here's the deal. 
this is how it works here at Christ Community. You don't have to be a member at our church to participate in communion, but we do ask that you will have made that choice to be submitted to the crucified God, to the wisdom of God. If that describes you, you'll come down one of these two aisles uh, around the front and around behind these two dividers back to one of our two communion serving stations. You'll gather in groups of four to six and take our gluten-free bread, dip it in the juice, and then partake together as a group in remembrance of what Christ has done. If you have a child with you today who has yet to make that step of faith, um, they're welcome. We ask that they not participate, but our servers would love to bless them in the same way that Jesus offered a blessing over them. This isn't meant to be a time that's rushed. It's not just the next part of our service. But it's meant to be a time for us to consider the wisdom of God, what God has done for us. But when we do come, let us remember why. It's because that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.